Okay, let's, um, let's get that right and uh, take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and 13, of course. I've been looking at, in the last couple of weeks, the imperative virtues of the Christian race. This is the end of the book of Hebrews, having gone through the whole book, uh, laying down all the theology, and now the practical outworking of that theology uh, is maybe something quite different than we would ever expect in Scripture. Uh, so, if you just look up to verse number 28, uh, it says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's really what sets the groundwork for what is said next. Those two general things in Scripture uh, from that verse, let us show gratitude. We're able to show gratitude, thankfulness to our great God and Savior for everything because of what He has done in our behalf. And then we are also able to genuinely serve our great God and Savior with the right attitude an attitude which pleases Him, an attitude that accept, uh, offers to God acceptable service. Remember, we can come into the presence of God because Christ is our high priest. He's our uh, intercessor. He's the one who mediates the covenant for us. So we have access to God, and that access to God allows us to bring to God acceptable worship. And the ground... The ground, the foundation for acceptable worship is living your life in the true light of God's essential character. And what is the essential character of God? Verse 29 of Hebrews 12, for our God is a consuming fire. We would not have ended there if we were writing this epistle. But God, through His Spirit, writing through the author, concludes theology with this, that our God is a consuming fire. He is a holy God, and God's holy character remains unchanged under the new covenant. He is the same God of Sinai as He is the God of Mount Zion. He is the same. He has not changed at all. He is, there's not a different God of the Old Testament and a different God of the New Testament. The Old Testament is not a God of wrath, and the New Testament is not a God of love. No, that is a wrong understanding of God. When we come to worship, we must keep in mind that our God is both a consuming fire and a, and a God of consuming love at the same time. We cannot separate Him. We cannot make Him something later on in life that He's not already. And so we have to be careful about that. And so we must worship God, approaching Him, understanding that He, we are to worship Him in reverence and in awe. Why? Because of who He is. Because of His essential character. And yet, at the same time, we believers need, as I mentioned last week, and throughout the message of Hebrews, we need endurance. Why? Because we have to practice our faith every day in this world, in our family situations, on our jobs, in the things that we have to do all the time. And so that includes 
especially our relationship with other people. So this section is talking about relationships with people. All right, live out your faith with people in mind. You can't live out your faith as a loner. You can't live out your faith in a vacuum. You have to live out your faith with other people. And like I said, sometimes people are not pleasant. They are not um, gracious. They are not kind. They are not a lot of things, right? And yet they're there. We can avoid them. We can do that. But Bible's saying don't do that. So we are now part of the body of Christ, and we are all responsible to attend to our social duties as Christians. And we should all be careful that we do not become slack in our social responsibilities, but instead be diligent because these very relationships are actually offerings of sacrifice to God. And when we use them in the right way, then we become a well-pleasing vessel before God in our relationships. This becomes a really important as believers see it's not about you it's about us right it's about other people that come into our life because we become the vessel in which god flows through to bring the gospel message to them and not only in word but also in deed so in uh these first verses of hebrews chapter 13 i said already they're sprinkled with imperatives commands pointing to the importance uh, of the imperative virtues of relationships while running the Christian race. Today, I will take a look at the next two. And so far, we considered two. And keep in mind that these virtues are the practical outworking of theology. What was the first one in verse number one? We must cultivate the virtue of constant love. And I looked at that last week. Let love of the brethren continue Hebrews 13.1, all right, so let something continue. And what is that? Our relationship that we have with, with each other because God loved us and demonstrated his love toward us, then we therefore need to turn around and love other people. Is that easy to do? No. But God commands us to do it because it is an imperative of what a Christian is. All right, so here, This is the crucial one. This is the crowning one. It is not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. It is an imperative virtue which gives the gathered assembly power, all right? And, of course, it also gives them a visible demonstration of the gospel, of theology, of who God is, of what God has done for us personally and individually and then corporately as a church. He has made us, he's taken us out of this world, out of darkness, out of the uh, under his wrath out of the bondage of sin and brought us together all right under one umbrella and that umbrella is christ crucified right dying being buried and rising again securing salvation for us eternally and so therefore that must change you there must be something different about you because of that all right, so is Christianity boring? Absolutely not. It's one of the most exciting lives that you can ever live because it's always moving. It's always going in and out and around, and God's bringing different things into your life all the time. And so the theology of constant love is this. It's simply this. Here, 
uh, is the theology. Christ demonstrated his love by dying on the cross for unworthy, ungodly sinners like you and I. And so therefore, we need to turn around and show that love to other people, especially other believers first. And then a second thing I mentioned last week is that we must not forget to display the virtue of unusual hospitality. Verse number 2 of Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And so the theology here is that Christ came to meet our greatest need. All right, the need of a great high priest and a mediator to bring us to God, to offer eternal salvation without cost by his grace. God was incredibly hospitable to us when he came into the world to meet us. He meets us. That's what he does. All right? We often are not looking for God. God is looking for us. And when he finds us and gets our attention, uh, then the means of grace are be, uh, become active in our life and God begins to draw that person to himself. That person may not even know it in the beginning parts of God drawing, but then they come to realize that they're a sinner under God's wrath and the only one who could rescue them and save them is Christ Jesus. And so they confess him, believing him in their, their heart that God raised him from the dead and he becomes their savior and they realize now how to be made right with God. And when you, of course, ultimately when you do die, you are promised eternal life, even though eternal life starts here and now. All right, now that brings me to my third virtue this morning, and that's found in verse number 3 of Hebrews chapter 13, that we must, we must keep in mind the virtue of, I'm calling it simple sympathy. For those believers in distress or in prison, verse number 3, it says this, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. Now, this is quite foreign to us in America. I don't think any of us really know anybody who has been imprisoned for their faith. I mean, the, the troubles that we go through as believers because of our faith is quite minute compared to what people are going through in the world in uh, in the church all over the world and yet the bible is saying listen remember the prisoners i may not know them i may have never met them but i am to remember them because again this could be an admonition that listen the, the use of actually the use of the verb suggests that they were forgetting about the brethren who have who were taken into custody for their testimony for Christ you know it's like the saying out of sight what out of mind right if you don't see people very long then you forget about what their problems are what they're going through and especially people who were incarcerated for their faith he is commanding the church do not forget them an example is in the, it's been all over the news, Pastor Youssef, who was charged in Iran with apostasy, that's abandoning Islam, 
And now he's charged with Zionism. And of course, both of them carry the sentence of death. He faces execution for his faith in Christ. See, we should pray that the Lord's will be done and maybe God will change the hearts of the Iranian judiciary and, and they would reconsider his death sentence. We should also pray that Pastor Youssef will be strong and hold fast to his faith and be like Meshad, Shadrach, and Abednego. If God delivers me, he can. He's able. But if he doesn't, then so be it. Right? Why? Because they know where they're going. When you're in a country like that, you know that real Christians, um, you know the difference at least between real Christians and there are no nominal Christians in places like this. you understand that? There's nobody professing Christ and living like the devil. They're, they're professing Christ, and they realize if they are continuing that uh, following the Lord and professing the Lord, they may die for their faith. They already have considered that. As a matter of fact, the Bible warns about that all over the place. And yet, I believe it's... I was going to think, you know, maybe I won't spend so much time on this passage. Maybe I'll just briefly read it and go over but you know what maybe we need to hear it more than anybody because we're not confronted with that yet unless we find ourselves in another part of the world or in a situation that we have to deal with this see these prisoners are such because of their faith in christ brethren with with all our advancements in knowledge and medicine and politics we have not advanced in civility the hatred against Christ and his people is still very much alive. It is hard to believe people being persecuted, even executed for their faith. Is it not hard to believe that? Yet, in my reading of Voice of the Martyrs, there may be more Christians being persecuted or dying for their faith in Christ today than we wish to admit in all of church history. But it's not broadcasted. It's not put out there for us to hear it. I mean, what about, I was just reading an article of a, a master seminary student who was over in India, uh, New Delhi, and he met this uh, Afghani pastor his name is Obeyed. And the pastor had had to flee Afghanistan, um, Muslim Afghanistan, because of a death sentence against him for his belief in Christ. Some, some Muslim spies had infiltrated his congregation and, um, in Afghanistan, and of course they were pretending to be interested in Jesus. And so they, they took pictures, they took videos, and then they took the pictures and videos and put it on public TV. So those people who were being confessing Christ on video and being baptized for their faith were, was broadcasted everywhere. And, of course, in Afghanistan, that's alone. What's going to happen? They're going to come hunt for you. They're going to come uh, hunt for you and get you and do what they have to do to get you. So... Obed told uh, 
of Christians being beaten and being tortured and sexually abused in prison just last month. This is not 50 years ago. This is last month. In fact, he said some have paid the ultimate price, like Abdul Latif, who was publicly beheaded earlier this year by four Muslim radicals for his faith. That's founded in an article uh, called Well-Founded Fear in World Magazine, June 16, 2011. See, I, I think we have to be reminded and not forget that people are actually dying for their faith. You know what? That means this. Our faith is really serious. And there's a spiritual battle going on that we better be realize behind the scenes because you know what? Everything, as we know it, these past 10 years, everything can change on a dime. What we know right now can change in an instant. Are we ready for that? And are we, are, if we are in a position like that, do we know that the church that we left behind, if we get pulled out and pull into prison or suffer for the Lord, they will pray for me. They will remember me. They will not forget me. So what are we asked to do in this passage? We're asked to do this, to keep in mind and then, while we're keeping it in mind, it says, as though you were in prison with them, to put yourself in their place. That's what we're asked to do. We're asked to keep them in mind, not to forget them, and to put ourselves in their place. Why? Because we have a common bond with them in Christ, Jesus, and they are part of the body of Christ. So, what are we to do? Well, we're to do that so we can be better at several things number one we can suffer with them right doesn't it say in corinthians and if one member suffers all the members suffer with them if we forget them how can we suffer with them how can we put ourselves in their place how can we sit down in our comfortable place in which we live in america and think of what are they really going through and what if it was me you know what would that mean and then, of course, the second thing we can do is pray for them. Now, by way of example, let's look to Acts chapter 12. Turn your Bibles back to Acts chapter 12. And just take a gander at this particular passage because the church, in this passage at least, was engaged in prayer. They were not forgetting who was in prison there. And, of course, the one in prison was Peter himself. And it says in Acts chapter 12, look at verse number 5. So Peter, it says, was kept in the prison. And then notice what it says. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. Isn't that great? See, that, that's what it is. They were praying for him while he was where? In prison. And then look down at verse number 11 of Acts 12. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now... I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod from all that the Jew, Jewish people were expecting. All right, of course, they were expecting to kill him. In verse 12, and when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, uh, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. 
And then in verse 14 or 13, when the, he knocked at the door of, of the gate, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. You're nuts. That's my translation. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying it's, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when he had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. So the church was fervently praying while he was in prison, and what happened, God miraculously, because he wasn't done with Peter yet, released him. Right, But look how the church was engaged with him in prayer. And that, of course, led to his release. And then another passage of Scripture, just to help us understand what we could do in these circumstances, is in Matthew chapter 25, in verse 35. All right, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, and you can see again, we, there is something that we ought to be doing because we are believers. And found in verse number 35 of Matthew 25, it says this. We, we could visit them. It says, I was hungry, in verse 20, 35, Matthew 25, 35. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Verse 30, 36, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see your, you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a, something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in and, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. So why do we do that? Because we do that because of extending the work of God through our lives to another believer. We're actually doing God's work. He's working through us to other believers. And of course, in other cases, we can help their family. And then, of course, we can do something toward obtaining their release. But if we forget, well, then... You know, out of sight, out of mind, then we don't even know what's happening. It doesn't bother me, and I don't do anything about it. And, uh, you know, they're over there, I'm over here, so what's the big deal, right? See, we ought not to think like that as a church. So we are not only to identify with them, because that's what it is. It's saying, listen, remember, then, then identify with them. Put yourself in their place. But then we are also to sympathize with those in bondage and those who are in any way abused because of their faith. Verse number 3 of Hebrews chapter 13. Look what it says in, in the sense of sympathizing with them. It says, And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. In other words, you know, we're not different than anybody else. If you cut us, we bleed, right? So if someone is hurting, we can get it. We can, we can enter in. We can sympathize with them. In fact, the word sympathize is defined as feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. For example, lately, we can say, I had great sympathy for the flood victims of the last hurricane. 
I, I can understand. We got flooded too. We didn't get as flooded as bad as other people, but I can enter into their situation. I can understand what they're going through and all the things you have to do after you get flooded out, especially if you have buildings and grounds. You have to rip everything out and get all the mold and all the mildew and all the stuff out. And um, so we can enter into that. But there's also the word empathy that people used. And by that, the word empathy is the ability to understand and to share the feelings of others. So these kind of words overlap many times when you use them. So according to Hebrews, that sympathy is actually learned by spiritual combat, by a struggle. In fact, turn back there uh, to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verse number 33 just to remind you that these believers became involved in this spiritual combat where it says in verse 33, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and then the second part of that, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. In other words, they entered in to the spiritual combat, to the spiritual combat going uh, going on behind the scenes because somebody became a believer spiritual wickedness is now against them so in both cases the church body became the place of strength and encouragement in fact in verse 33 of hebrews 10 they became sharers sharers all right in the conflicts not personally their own but someone else's but they can understand the bodily struggle that someone would go through if they were under a situation where they were being persecuted and so actually the greek word sharer there is the word koinonia which means fellowship uh you became a partner with an associate with a comrade with a companion with so to those christians who were not likely in even in their own congregation possibly not even jews as these most likely were mostly jewish christians they were followers of Christ, though. And they entered into fellowship with those who, because of their faith in Christ, uh, were reviled and abused and hunted and caught, and some were in prison, and some were put to death. And it says, and they willfully practiced koinonia, fellowship or sharers with the outcasts that were downtrodden. So they, what did they do? They just manifested real and vital appreciation of uh, what a person can go through, and it was shared amongst the body of believers. So the Hebrew Christians were given proof that the unity in the church must be maintained by acting together in the power of the Spirit for the sake of someone who needs care. Like Paul told the Corinthian church, so that they may be there may be no division in the body. Why shouldn't there be a division in the body of the church? Because you can't do what you ought to be doing if there's division, right? And he said this, but the members, the members may be of the same care one for another. You can't care for one another if you're having division in the body, right? So you have to take care of the division. So what? You get to what you're supposed to be doing. And what's that? The practical outworking of theology. And what is this? It's right here, visiting the prisoners, entering, in, entering into what they're going through, praying for them, being involved with them. So it, so it, it has been, uh, when the Lord brings us into or through times of suffering, tribulation, 
humiliation that we begin to see with the eyes of faith and we learn what we have gained in Christ. All right, and what, what do we gain from Hebrews 10? We gain sympathy. We learn how to sympathize with others and we learn how to show, actually, chapter 10, verse 34, it says, and you showed sympathy to the prisoners. So they were acting in the spirit of Christ, their high priest, who was meeting the needs of the brethren through the church. And that's how God usually meets the needs of the brethren is through the church, right? But if the church is so individualistic and off doing their own thing and it's about me, myself, and I, then you're not going to meet any people's needs. You're not going to remember people in suffering and persecution. You're not going to pray for them. You're not even going to be available for prayer because you are doing your own thing. But the church is saying, God is saying to the church, no, you can't think like that anymore. You have to begin to think about other people. That's theology. That's how it works out. Begin to think about other people. In fact, the word sympathize in Hebrews means to be affected with the same feelings as another, to be touched with the feelings of. And this word is a sense that the affections are inwardly moved when somebody is suffering, even if you don't know them. So Hebrews already showed us uh, the sympathy of Christ and that he learned, the sympathy that he learned by experience. That, in other words, that he was born a man, just like us. He lived a human life. He knew childhood. He, he knew youth. He knew manhood. He knew about the home, about love, about labor, about pain, about patience, about faith. And all the ordinary human experiences that anyone else would go through, he knew, and he grew in them, for it tells us in Luke he did. He knew temptation. He knew, to have, he knew victory over it. He knew the depth of temptation we would never know. He understood courage and the tests of courage, and yet Jesus possesses full humanity, full human ability, and more than human ability, that he, and, and what I mean by that is that he knows and feels what people know and feel. He is not taken by surprise in our suffering or just can't get in there with us to figure out what you're going through. Like I, see, I hear people say all the time to me, God doesn't understand my situation. Wrong. You don't understand your own situation, and God does. And let God adjust your thinking to his program and maybe you will understand see our thinking is all wrong in this particular area see god knows and feels what people know and feel in a deeper way than anyone else knows and he could do it with a finer insight than any other human being because of the largeness and the richness of his personality it enabled him to go beyond others to take human burdens upon his own heart. See, Christ could understand the terrible meaning of human evil like no one else could understand it. That's why he came to us. That's why he sympathized with us. That's why he did what he did on the cross and demonstrated such a great extent of love because he knew that we would not understand what needed to be done for that 
to be taking place. So with this insight into our lot, Christ could have a true feeling with us in our imperfections and in our sinfulness and then take care of it as it ought to be taken care of. So with the inflow of the love of God in your hearts, you will find that you, will, you actually will find the grace to share gladly with the burdens and the trials of others, though you know it will always cost you to do so. So in verse number 3, it says of Hebrews 13, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. So see, in other words, he's saying, listen, you can do this because God's given you the enablement to do it, and you're human, you know what it means, even on different levels to suffer for different things at different times, in different ways. And so if you heighten that to a, being ripped away from your family and put in prison, then you can also put yourself in that place and realize, wow, what is that person going through? And then remember them in prayer before God. So constant love, unusual hospitality, and simple sympathy. Let that be so of us as a congregation. Let that be so of us as believers. And so this morning... There's another one that I just want to touch on, and I'm going to bring it back up next week. And this is the deepest human relationship that we can have on this earth. And that relationship is in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 4. Look at the first word. What does it say? Marriage, right? Marriage, a relationship that was created by God and shown to be sacred by Christ himself. Now, if you look at marriage, if you consider marriage today, then human sinfulness has wrecked havoc in this relationship. In fact, divorce is on the rise, and some people even here are, could be the victim of that uh, a divorce relationship because of, of sin their own and others, other people's sin and an unwillingness to do things in a way that honors God. Also, the world, the world, the world in which we live in, uh, which makes its plans and policies without reference to God. They don't consider God's standard or God's word. So even today, in the public eye, marriage is remade, reformed, and redefined to such an extent is no longer recognizable in reference to the original design and purpose that God intended in the beginning. So what, why is he saying this to the church? Because this is a relationship that ought to be brought back to its original intention in the church. If people want to know what marriage is about, they ought to look at God's church. And they'll still see people there who understand marriage, who understand what God did in marriage, and their marriage will become how? It'll become something like a picture of how Christ loves the church. See, that's what people ought to say. So, so what is the admonition here that we're to keep the marriage institution in high esteem in the church? 
Look at verse number 4. It says, Marriage is to be held in what? In honor among all. So the Greek, I'll just stop right there, the Greek term for marriage actually is used in other places actually refers to a wedding celebration or a wedding banquet or a wedding garment. Now, in each usage, there is an emphasis on a special event that takes place between a man and a woman, which includes some kind of public covenant and celebration. In other words, marriage is a public thing for all people to see and participate in when somebody, a young man and a young woman, say we want to get married, and they enter into an engagement uh, time, and so they prepare for that one event in which they say, I do, and they make a covenant before God and before people, a public presence, and therefore it becomes a celebration, and that's what it is. Marriage is a celebration, Uh, But we, as the church, are to maintain a correct mindset concerning marriage. It can easily, the world at this point can easily come into your thinking, easily come into your mind. In fact, we should not find within the church uh, for those who profess Christ divorce. Because God does hate it. Right? And not only that, when we enter into marriage and then into the body of Christ, the gathered assembly, we help each other's marriages. Right? We watch out for each other. We pray for each other. There's a cor- corporate unity and protection within the church when it comes to this particular institution. So there are several things that we're to maintain, at least three things we're to maintain from this passage of Scripture as far as our understanding of marriage. And the first thing is this, to maintain the correct mindset concerning marriage. Now, the Word of God is exhorting the gathered, gathering of believers to maintain a mindset that is biblical. And what is that mindset? Look at verse number 4. It says the marriage is to be held in honor among all all right that means the marriage institution is honorable uh and that's the mindset we ought to have that what does that mean it means it's pressured it's costly it's of great worth or value so it's to be respected and held in a biblical light in which god has originally designed from genesis onward and it's to be honorable that's how we're to think of it not as something like uh, uh coming to uh a ceremony and say, well, if it don't work out, I'll just... You, you fill in the blank, right? That should never be in the church. That's why when a young person, young uh, man or woman meets someone else, they ought to consider, number one, can I spend the rest of my life with this person? And first of all, is that person a true and honest believer in Jesus Christ and has a desire as a young person to follow him? Are they doing it? it? Will they do it if you weren't even there? See, it's honorable institution, and it's a final institution. A second thing that goes along with that, how do we, in other words, how do we keep this institution honorable? Well, here's the second reason uh, that the marriage bed, it says in verse number four, the marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. All right, so he gets right down to it. He doesn't mince words at all, and he's saying there, listen, uh, 
there could be a misunderstanding within the church about marriage, all right, and how one would look at marriage. And of course, the mindset here is to be un, uh, undefiled or pure or unsullied is another way of saying that there are always different mindsets in regard to marriage and they're flying all over the place in our society, right? In fact, back then, there was the mindset of asceticism. Asceticism was, uh, a, an ascetic would consider marriage not really honorable, but defiling and filthy. In other words, that the marriage bed would be something not honorable, but something filthy in their minds, a sexual filth. In fact, that's what Timothy warned pastors when somebody would impose upon them a particular wrong mindset of marriage where he says in 1 Peter 4.3, he says this, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who know and believe the truth. In other words, for someone to say, that, listen, if you want to be a holy and a right Christian, you should never get married is totally wrong. I think the Catholic Church got it wrong. In fact, they have all these problems because they got it wrong. In fact, that's the doctrine of demons. The doctrine of demons is a doctrine that, uh, that is saying something that God has not said. And it's, it's put out there as truth. See, we're to think of marriage as not something that is filthy, or defiling, but something that is pure and holy, something that has been designed by the Creator Himself, God Himself, and has been given to us as a gracious gift. See, that's how we look at it. And um, in fact, there's nothing, biblically, there's nothing dishonorable in marriage or defiling in, in marriage copulation. Uh, in other words, the marriage bed, as it's mentioned here. In fact, in Corinthians, uh, the Bible uh, tells the Corinthian church, of course, they were steeped in immorality in that church, and so Paul has to mention it to them. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 7 1. You don't have to turn there, just listen. It says, Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. Now, some people can reinterpret that and say, Well, it doesn't really mean that. Yes, it does. And then this is what it says, because it's qualified by the second verse. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband, and the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to the husband. In other words, if somebody is burning in lust in their flesh for sexual things, then God has provided a solution for that, and that solution would be marriage. Now, it does not mean, as I say that, that God does not call people to celibacy in their life. He does. He calls people uh, to a place where they don't desire to be married. They don't have that issue in their life, and so he gives them the grace to be able to go through life without being married. But he knows the desires of your heart, and if the desires of your heart is to be married someday, then pray for that and be looking for a man or a woman that line up in the Word of God to what a real believer is and then begin to pray whether that the, that's the right person 
for you and then to remember in your mind to think that listen marriage is honorable it is a good institution that god's made and everything in it and even the marriage bed has all been designed by god and is good and is a gift to you and enjoy it that's what the bible is saying and other than that you're wrong other than that you're wrong see we come into marriage sometimes with wrong strange unusual views and it could be it could be the relationships we had before we got to marriage or the things that we've been thinking about and viewing before we got to marriage if you've been raised on uh you know all this media and tv that has totally destroyed the marriage institution and the thought of what a real marriage is then you can really come with tons of baggage into a marriage situation and not realize what it really is it's a really a a, a real gift from god so how are we the church to keep marriage honorable further and i let me say this by never allowing its honor to be defiled by sexual violations Now, I'm going to expand on this next week, but this week I just want to give you the general outline or the general background of it. And what do I mean by that? Well, look at the scripture. Verse number four. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. Now, he includes in here two groups. Each of these groups will defile and dishonor marriage. Here's the first group. The first group is fornicators. It's the word, the Greek word, pornos, or we we get the word pornographic. And it means one who practices sexual immoralities in advance to their marriage, in advance to the gift that's God's putting in front of them. So this is a defiling behavior that dishonors marriage in advance of the marriage celebration. In other words, God's saying to us through Scripture, listen, it's not just after marriage, it's before marriage you're to keep yourself pure as a believer. If you're going to honor marriage as an institution, you must honor it now before you get married. And that means you cannot be involved with any kind of fornication any kind of sexual immorality this term designates those persons who indulge in sexual relationships outside the marriage bond both heterosexual and homosexual it includes all kinds of impurity and unnatural vices there's nothing in this word that you can add to it that says they didn't mean this Nope, can't do it. It's, it's, a, it's such a broad word, it encompasses every single sexual deviant behavior that anybody can ever think of. Matter of fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, when in Deuteronomy, he lists all the crazy, crazy sexual things men would do, even to the point of having sexual relationship with animals. See, the Bible does not at all pull back on the deep wickedness of human heart to satisfy and gratify their lustful desires right and god has given us a sexual drive and that drive is powerful so we need god's spirit to 
keep it at bay. And we need God's church and the support and the prayer of God's church to make sure that young people stay pure and don't follow the cues of the world when it comes to marriage, but they learn before they get there to keep that institution honorable in their mind and their heart. That it is a special day. It is a special celebration, and it is the most intimate relationship you can have with anybody on this side of eternity, and God gave it to us. He designed it. He's the master plan planner. He wrote the blueprints, right? If we go back to what he said, then we will be able to honor marriage uh, prior to that. Now, there's a second word he uses here, and that's the word adultery. It's moikas, adulterer. And this word is a word that means, this is really defiling, defiling behavior that dishonors marriage after marriage has been entered into. So God thought of it all. Before marriage, think of marriage as honorable. After marriage, you're not out of the woods just because you get married as to sexual passions. No. It says here, listen, it's any defiling behavior that dishonors marriage afterwards. After marriage has been entered into. So this term indicates those who are unfaithful to their marriage vows. So these two adjectives cover all who licentiously, freely engage in forbidden practices against the one who sets the boundaries and rules for such relationships. And who sets the boundaries and rules for marriage? God does, right? And where does it bring us? I said already that we're to maintain a correct mindset concerning marriage. Secondly, that we're to maintain correct behavior in marriage, before marriage and after marriage, right? So, so this means that the responsibility of all of Christ's church is to view marriage as honorable and undefiled, and we are never to disgrace the institution by sexual unfaithfulness. We're never to do that, ever to do that. You know what? You're not going to hear this anywhere else except here. There's a third thing to maintain, and this is maybe the most important of the two. Verse number 4, 13, we're going to maintain a correct view of God. It comes up again. And here's something very important to consider. And it, look what it says. It says, for fornicators and adulterers. What does it say there? What does it say? God will judge. So see, people can have their good time now. They can have their own definitions. They can convolute, redesign, redefine marriage. But God says, oh, you have your fun. Someday, I will judge you for that. Someday, I will judge you and I will not let anybody get out of it. Because why? You dishonored my great gift of marriage. So is it serious to God? Absolutely. Absolutely serious. But you know what? Let me just stop here for a minute. I want to back up for a minute. And to back up, I need you to back up with me. Back up to 1 Corinthians 
chapter 6, verse 9. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because we're, in a sense, all guilty here. What do I mean by that? We're guilty in this sense. We may never have engaged in an ongoing sinful practice like this, whether before or after. We may have, but we have thought about it. We have imagined it. In fact, I just read an article, which I'll probably mention next week, but the article was about, it was from the Huffington Post. It was nothing, nothing Christian about it. And this woman just took two, 200 couples and asked them some simple questions. Do you ever think about getting out of your marriage? That was one of the questions. Well, 90% of the people said yes. At the end of her survey, she asked, well, what would you do? Would you rather stay in your marriage or would you rather go and have another relationship outside your marriage? And 51% said they would rather stay in their marriage for various reasons. And 49% said they would like to have several things going on in their marriage. See, that's the mindset of the world. Uh, she, this particular woman interviewed these people across the board, not any particular individuals, not any type of groups of people, but just general people from all walks of life. And this was the general mindset. You know where that mindset comes from? That mindset comes from the media. It comes from sitcoms. It comes from what the world movies. It comes with the come from it comes from what the world thinks about and what the world desires. And so, but for the believer, that cannot be anymore. We cannot think like that anymore. We, we are responsible before God in this precious relationship, before and after. Even if we never get married like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he still had a high view of marriage. And he kept it there. See, we're constantly getting pulled away in our thinking and our imaginations to things that are not biblical yet and are just unreal fantasies. That's all they are. They're the lure of Satan and the, to, tempta to tempt us in this area. Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. You know why I'm reading this? Because this is God's grace in this passage. Look what it says in verse number 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? Now, you know what? We may not be all of those things, but we're some of those things. And for some of us, we're all of those things. Whether in practice or in thinking, we are. But look at the next verse. And I love this passage of Scripture. Look what it says. And such were some of you. So when we think about, let me stop there. When we think about who we are, in the context of being a Christian, I pray it's this. That's the way I was, but I'm not that anymore. That's what I used to do, and that's the way I used to think, but I don't 
think like that anymore. And when I'm tempted to think like that, I run to Christ and his cross and I confess my sin. I ask him like the Lord's prayer says, Lord, deliver me from what? Temptation. The, uh, the prayer for deliverance of temptation is daily, just like you pray for your daily food. It's daily. Why? Because we're getting knocked from pillar to post with sexual temptation everywhere we go. Ah, look at verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed. Amen? And you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. That's salvation. That's what God has done for us. He's cleansed us of it all. And even now, when we're tempted in it, we come to the cross and we know the cleansing, powerful, efficacious blood of Christ that is real every day of my life because of what he's done. And that's the way I must think so I keep this marriage institution honorable so people can look at our church and say, I can see how high marriage and the view of marriage is kept in your congregation by all the people. By all the people. And then, then there is what I'm going to pick up next time. We ought to maintain a correct conduct that is pleasing to God in regard to in regard to marriage and sexual relationships. And if you just quickly turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, next week I'm going to get into some of the details. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined to this. I was down then in verse number 13. It says this, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. In other words, uh, from this passage and, and the ones that come after that, the Apostle Paul understands the allure of sexual sin so that his epistle to the formerly idolatrous, idolatrous Thessalonians, he provides a perspective that is too often neglected in a sexually intoxicated culture in which we live. The great threat for the pursuer of sexual sin in, is not found in the object of desire, but it, rather it is, is found in the throne room of heaven. In other words, what do they love more? Do they love that more or God more? And then in verse number 13, it says, So he may establish your hearts unblameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. And then chapter 4, verse number 1, Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, 
that you excel still more. In other words, if you're walking to please God, excel more and more. Don't stop. But then look what he says in verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2, for you know that commandment we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the manner because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we also told you before and soundly warned you, for God has not called us to the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. And then it says in verse 8, so he who rejects this, doesn't live by it, ignores it, is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So I'm going to look at that passage of Scripture next time that we meet, but just to put before you that practical theology has to do with relationships, at least in this part of Hebrews. And one of uh, the segment the segments of our relationships is marriage how we view it how we understand it how we practice it and how we honor god and how we keep it honorable before the world and you know what i don't see things getting better in the world and i don't see things getting better in the church so once we ha- are armed with this understanding we ought to be the ones who exemplify it right and if you have sinned in any way in this way confess it to the lord be done with it today put it out of your life for good so we can say that's what i used to do i don't do that anymore and then if you are having trouble in your marriage and you need help ask somebody so somebody can help you don't wait 10 years uh until husband and wife are just existing in their marriage and not not reaping the benefits of this great institution and um and if god has rescued you and given you another chance and now you see it see it biblically and you understand it now then protect that marriage and and live in a way where your marriage becomes a picture of how christ loves the church that that's what we ought to be doing right and so I pray that young people that you would uh, would really get this in your head and in your heart that God sees this seriously and if you want to please the Lord you have to change some things that you're doing and practicing and put God's word first so you can honor him and be well pleasing to him not only in your thoughts but in the way you view this great institution amen because Satan is trying to destroy that too and is doing a good job at it. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the admonition that we find in this text. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who keep the marriage institution in high esteem, that we would be a people that are characterized by an ever-growing constant love unusual hospitality and simple sympathy that we just know how to think about troubles people are going through and be able to pray for them um, and do something to help their 
situation. Oh, Lord, I, I pray you would always make us mindful of these things. I know this is not going to be the last time we need to be reminded of these things. But I pray, Lord, that you would keep it before our minds and help us to fight for purity. Help us to fight to keep the marriage institution honorable. Help young people to say no to premarital sex and fornication. Help married people to be satisfied in their marriages so they don't have to be looking elsewhere. In fact, looking elsewhere is just wrong before you anyway. Help them to see how sinful that is and that we ought to be looking at how we can be reaping the fruit and the joy of the marital relationship. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for these truths. Help us now to implement them and to take theology and put it into practice. We honor you and praise you today for all you'll do in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand.